You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball. I'm joined by our special guest today, the 20s trader, but I'll just call you James for the rest of this. So, James, do you want to just tell us how you first became interested in investing and could you just briefly talk us through your investing career to date? Sure, thank you for uh, having me on the show. No problem. So I started investing in 2013. Um, My first share I ever bought was the Royal Mail IPO, uh, which is quite interesting listening to some of your other investors coming on the show, Sam, how a lot of people kind of start off in the game with um, you know, IPOs of British companies. But um, yeah, that was my foray into investing when I was at college. So I was doing my A-levels and it's very business and economics focus. And I was learning about um, you know, what makes Unilever a special business or you know, the price elasticity demands of um, tobacco companies. I'm really just kind of getting my insights into all types of different businesses and kind of that's where my interest really spiraled. So uh, the opportunity came up to purchase the Royal Mail IPO and I did. So part of, I think, £700 at the time and then sold it on pretty much straight after they IPO'd on the market. I think there was something like a three £400 return there. So not bad for a quick transaction, but that really was my first kind of insight. And then from there, um, I just kind of started reading more and more about the markets um, and slowly kind of easing myself in. I think um, my kind of investment journey changed a little bit when I went to university. So I studied economics um, and I had a fantastic module, which was the economics of the financial crisis done by a guy called Gary Abrahams. He was a ex-director of debt at a UBS bank during the financial crisis. So he kind of took us on this journey through fraud, uh, the bubble of 0708, um, and much more, you know, taking us through, you know, the tulip bubble, the dot-com bubble, and really kind of instilling a very bearish view in us as a kind of a cohort of university students. Um, And that really kind of, again, piqued my interest, but more into kind of reading books about, you know, investing from Buffett to Robert Schiller, and trying to kind of unpick why that crisis happened and where the markets were currently. Um, so kind of extrapolating the two and sort of trying to find where we were at that time, which was probably 2014, 2015. So at university, I then kind of found the art of quality investing uh, and was introduced to a few people. So Terry Smith, Peter Lynch, uh, other kind of quality managers and just started to sort of see valuation in a bit of a different light where I was previously looking at, you know, very British value-based companies and not really achieving much of a good return. So looking at your kind of your Lloyds, your tobacco companies and, you know, those classic legacy businesses in the UK that your typical kind of commentators at the time uh, were talking a lot about. And you had Neil Woodford, uh, who was very popular at the time, you know, talking a lot about equity valuations and how value businesses were you know, going to go through uh, a step change and a re-rating. Um, so kind of on from that, I was introduced to these more quality style managers and started kind of getting introduced to some of the companies that they hold. 
uh, and really some of the companies that were moving the markets forward at that particular time. And kind of after dipping my toe in to those quality businesses, that's really where everything kind of started changing for me in terms of you know investment success, uh, understanding the market a bit more, uh, and really kind of that's where things took off and I started building my portfolio and you know building from there really. So I think that's probably a, a good summary of my investment journey to date. So how did the the actual twenties trader come about, including the name, and also do you consider yourself to be more of a trader or an investor? Yeah, so. Um, Really good question. I think I'll answer your second question first, which is kind of, I'd answer that by saying I'm probably more of a blend of the two. I'd call myself a market opportunist. So I'm not really into trading anything across a super short time frame, you know, day trading or anything like that. But if the opportunity lends itself for a good trade, then I'll probably be very interested in that. And I think it sort of comes from the idea that really in the UK, we've struggled to produce any real long-term compounders that you see in the US. So really like looking back at my investment history and you know what stocks people are involved in in the UK, it's quite difficult to make a substantial return just by kind of being that patient long-term investor. And if you do want to be engaged in the UK markets, I think you probably have to consider a bit of a different approach. So an example that I'd kind of share, you know, along those lines would be ASOS, for example. So in the last 10 years, ASOS has done a 300% rally, followed by a drop of 60% or more in three occasions in the last 10 years. So that's a great company. But, you know, if you were taking the long-term approach to that business, you'd probably be pretty frustrated that you didn't execute a trade uh, on one of the 300% swings. So that was kind of, uh, you know, an insight into why I think trading is probably an important tool to have, but really where it comes into play, kind of my, my thesis is to kind of keep as flexible as possible and not really let whether you're an investor or a trader dictate what you have to do. It's more about looking at the individual opportunity and saying, okay, if I'm into Microsoft or Alphabet, you know, it probably makes a good, you know, it's probably makes a lot of sense to hold on to those companies for the long term. But if we're looking at some other opportunities that might equally give you a good return over a medium sort of period of less than a year, let's say, you've got to kind of look at those two. I think that's probably where I where I am at the moment. In terms of actually the name 20s Trader, um, so I guess it kind of I guess it kind of comes from my start of doing this service um, as a sort of newsletter provider researcher uh, at my website, which is the 20s Trader. So really that service was initiated from kind of me going through eight years of learning about markets and wanting to kind of have a platform to discuss it, but not really kind of settling on exactly the right way to go about that and having the time to do it. So when the pandemic struck, uh, I found myself with a lot of time on my hands like everyone else and decided to kind of have a go at creating this platform. Uh, And I thought that the 20s trader kind of embodies really what I wanted to talk about, but also kind of gives it an approachable name, something that people can kind of easily identify with. You know, I'm in my 20s, I'm involved in the stock market, you know, I didn't want to make it too serious. So um, I think that's 
really where that comes from. What did make you decide to start the newsletter? And do you want to just talk a bit about what you actually cover in the newsletter? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so the start of my newsletter was really kind of initiated from a space where, you know, I'm in my mid 20s. I've got a lot of friends who are just starting to kind of get interested in the markets, whether they're they've got their first job or you know they're saving some money to put down for a deposit for a house or something like that so i was getting consistently asked for you know investment well, you'd probably call it advice of course it's it's not advice it's you know educational informational purposes but you know i had a constant kind of engagement with a, a lot of people that i knew around investing and getting involved in markets so i kind of was sat there saying well why don't I, you know, if I'm being asked all this information, why don't I kind of make some use of it and see if other people out there would benefit from the information? Um, so I started writing and really it was quite daunting at the start because you're kind of writing on companies and, you know, you, you probably think that, you know, a lot of the writing is done by professional journalists or, you know, financial researchers. So just trying to kind of I guess acclimatize yourself to that and also you know make sure that your writing is a good level of quality that it can kind of stand the test of time and be a good reference point for people so those are the kind of two kind of hurdles that I was dealing with but starting the newsletter about a year ago now I've got you know email subscribers in the hundreds and uh, just under 100 sort of paid subscribers uh, I do it through a patron service so the website's really looking at uk and a couple of us companies that i write kind of introductory uh, investment research on on a kind of quarterly basis whenever you know that company updates so i cover you know popular companies such as fever tree um i covered bloomsbury a publisher uh, a couple of days ago so i kind of give a good insight into the history of the business the business model and look at some of the financials and really kind of a piece that I like to differentiate with my newsletter to a few that I've seen elsewhere, especially in the UK, is I don't use any um, secondary sort of research provider for financials or, or anything like that. It's all taken directly from the annual report. So I can kind of trust that information and, and share that with others. And so, yeah, that the website kind of encapsulates some free kind of introductory research. And then the patron service that I have uh, covers my portfolio. Um, which I have two portfolios that I list on there. And then weekly market analysis, in-depth newsletters that really take a peer group focus. So I was doing this on a monthly basis. It's now shifted to a quarterly basis where I do a big peer analysis of a sector that I like the look of at that given time. So I think the most recent uh, peer group analysis I did was into the pet sector. So looking at companies like Zoetis, pet food companies like Fresh Pet, uh, true Panion insurance companies, all this sort of stuff to kind of really take a good comparison of that industry um, and look at each company's financials and their prospects. And then we take a kind of a, a dive into what the best opportunity at that given time might be. Um, so I think that kind of style of writing where I'm looking at a peer group really kind of something that I don't see much of. I see lots of kind of deep dives into a specific company. But as an investor, I really like to kind of find investments by looking at a peer group and separating them out from peers. Um, so yeah, that was really what my newsletter is all about.
so when you say like a peer group you're talking like for example like you might take a look at the house builders and then see which one you like the best of the companies exactly. in that sector right okay exactly um, so so maybe not the house builders from a kind of a quality that's just a random example yeah yeah so um you know maybe like a recent one that we did was um the vision care industry so looking at contact lens manufacturers carl zeiss which is an, an optical medical device company so it's really kind of a specific quality industry and then kind of extrapolating you know all of the peer data do you think that actually cataloging like your thoughts and your process and like having to like write down and knowing it's going out to other people has improved you as an investor at all like let, let, let's not be results orientated that's the difficulty because you know it's short, such a short space of time to kind of be results orientated i've done it for just under a year so and uh, you know who knows what the outcome financially is going to be in terms of investment performance but in terms of actually going out there and being able to find these good companies and special situations and you know really kind of understanding the wider market and industries absolutely so in terms of being able to kind of identify um, potential opportunities yes but i think you know we won't know the kind of outcome financially for a long time yet I mean, it wasn't just financially as well, because it's just like, for example, like one thing I've noticed is like, since doing the podcast, it's like there's this things where I'd say it, where I'd have thought it. And then when you're saying it and you know other people are going to listen, you think, oh, actually, am I actually 100% sure on that yeah. point? Or so I'd better go and it's just like, I think looking back on how I was before doing the podcast, I think there's, I don't know what the word is, there, there were just certain parts of like things that I was thinking in terms of how I was looking at the investments where they were probably in hindsight a little bit sloppy and because it's going yeah. out to like someone else it's like well actually I need to be 100% sure on every single point that I'm saying yeah no I, I, I agree with you on that front you you can uh, w- without kind of having a, a, a reference point or someone that you know is looking at the work that you're doing you, you can be slapdash right yeah because um, so- obviously when it's for yourself you don't actually need to go into the as much detail because you think you understand it and then when you're actually putting it out and you know someone else is going to look it's like well actually i maybe don't understand that point as much as i'd assumed i did yes yeah no i i agree with you there i think the remit that i kind of like to get involved with i guess are understandable businesses so Mm. that's that's an interesting one i think maybe at some point i'll branch out into areas that maybe I'll exercise that muscle a bit more. So Mm. for instance, I don't really cover anything very technology focused. I think I've I've got a couple in there that I've covered, but you know, I would never, I would never find myself writing about something like Palantir or, you know, a company with, you know, very complex software. Mm. You know, if I was to write about that, uh, that would take me a long, long time because I would have to kind of go very slowly and check all the facts and, so I think there would be that from a certain respect, but a lot of the companies that I cover are quite easily understandable. So you can kind of, yeah, there's less, less variation there probably. Mm. So could you talk us through, well, talk a bit about your investment appraisal process and how you would look at approaching a new stock or potential investment? Yeah, certainly. So the, there's a few different pieces to this puzzle, I guess. There's a kind of, an overarching principle that I have, which is my kind of quality focus, for which I've got four main things that I look for. Um, and that is growth is the first one. 
So is the company growing at an appropriate rate? So let's call it 10% really is anything, anything above that I kind of deem appropriate to fit in the category, but not just, you know, has it done 10% in a year or two, you know, hopefully it's got a long track record of growth or, you know, you, you can see the way forward. I think, um, you know, if there's a couple of years that growth's kind of not been there, but then it's picking back up again, that's potentially something that, you know, I can consider. The second is operating margin. You know, since I've started focusing on stocks with good operating margins, so above 15%, you know, you run into a lot less travel. Um, I just think, you know, as far as peace of mind is involved, sticking to that one criteria will, will help you out a lot. So operating margin is something I look for. And then the two sort of more intangible factors, which are the moat. So if a company's got good growth, it's got a good operating margin, how's that company going to protect that business from other competitors? And, you know, you could potentially view that in a multitude of, of different ways, brands, patents, installed bases. And then um, lastly, management, which is probably the most difficult criteria to fulfill. We're trying to understand, you know, how strong is management what sort of decisions are they making you know financially but operationally too and again this is something that's very very difficult to identify and it's something that probably you have to keep up with because management changes but also you know what you think might be a very good manager you know can turn around and do a massive acquisition and you know your whole your whole thesis changes so um those are probably my my four kind of overarching principles uh, and then when I'm actually looking at new investments I have two kind of pools I'd say I have a, an existing universe that I've already kind of conceptualized a hundred or so companies that I think kind of fit that criteria and then also my research that I'm doing on a monthly basis quarterly basis is kind of feeding into that that kind of universe that I have so building up that kind of nice pool of companies that are potentially good investments to look at what stage does valuation then come into it <laughs> that that's you know an interesting question i think if we wind back maybe five six years valuation was the number one criteria for me uh, and that's where you know it's changed massively as i've kind of grown as an investor the, the valuation really for me is kind of one of the last things now on the page i mean having kind of still had that upbringing in financial markets with, you know, as I spoke about the module earlier that I took around kind of financial crisis and bubbles and things like that, I still kind of, I would say, I probably automatically rule myself out of some areas of the market where valuation just doesn't make sense at all. But, you know, if I like a franchise, you know, I like a business for its prospects, I'm far more inclined to push the buy button regardless of um you know it's PE per se what's the best book or you can give more than one um books that you've read on the subject of investing and how much do you read in general yeah so um I probably read other materials more than I do books just kind of out of preference I probably prefer looking into specific company annual reports or, or reading fund manager notes. That's really where I kind of get most of my insights from. But in terms of books, I'll kind of list a few that I found very useful and insightful. So my all-time favorite is One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch. I think um, 
you know, just the way he takes you through his investment journey and his philosophies and what he looks for in investments is fantastic. And I think, um, have you, have you read one up on Wall Street? Sam? I have. I, I, I think that's one of the best books someone can read as a beginner, actually. I think it's yeah, very good. Uh, and I think it's something that I was just kind of contemplating quite recently was how, you know, that process that he went through is so repeatable. And, you know, for instance, we, we had uh, a fantastic stock that you could have literally found very easily just following his process. And that was um, Lululemon, which to me is exactly the same as the shares that he was talking about, about um, the stockings that his wife was wearing. Oh, yeah. I forget what they're called. They're called like legs or something like that. But it was just so interesting that that's kind of repeated a process again and got on to be such a winning stock, you know, exactly as his theory kind of states. So yeah, that's a favorite book of mine. And then kind of some of the classics. So Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. That's a good one. Um, stock Picking for Profit and The Naked Trader. Um, they're two UK books that... I, I really like um i don't know if you're into robbie burns um he's i've not actually heard of him oh really okay he's not on twitter but he's probably the most famous uk private investor he's got a his own website called the naked trader and he's done three or four books that really kind of are about uk markets and spread betting and uh, investing in, in the uk so really insightful stuff there and then simon thompson is from the investors chronicle um, he's done a book called Stock Picking for Profit. Then I have a couple that are more economics related, but they still got quite a kind of hinge in the stock market. And that's The Subprime Solution by Robert Schiller, looking at the sort of 07, 08 crisis, but also looking at it from a property perspective and why equities are probably a better investment than property over the long term. Uh, and then The Black Swan by Nassim Taleb, uh, that's a good one if you are interested in the human psyche of markets and thought processes, very, very insightful there. And lastly, I've got one that's a, a business-related book, which is one of my favorites, which is Going Down Tobacco Road by a guy named Gene Hoots, who was a employee at RJ Reynolds over a sort of 20-year period. I think he was an accountant for them, so he kind of chronicles their rise pretty much one of the most successful companies ever so it's a good book too have you read any of taleb's other books An animal spirits is that his other book i don't i don't know that one um so i know there's yeah. there's black swan it's um is it full by randomness oh that's the one yeah yeah anti-fragile so anti-fragile it's on my list but i've not actually read it yet i mean he's got quite a lot actually yeah I yeah no I, I haven't covered it anything else really than uh the black swan i think um it's quite a different way, way of thinking. Um, mm. But again, you know, as I've kind of moved on, you know, from, you know, over time, you sort of find that the kind of the bearish thinking isn't essentially a profitable strategy. So it's yeah. important to kind of consider things, but, you know, you don't want to get too bearish when you're in a, uh, a bull market, right? <laughs> yeah, I, th I think his way of just the way he thinks about certain things, I think is really, really useful to read. But he, when he describes his own portfolio and how he runs that, I, I agree. Like it's, it's certainly not something I'd want to try and replicate. And I'd, I'd like to be completely honest. I do. I would question how, I would be interested to see how successful the portfolio has actually been for him over the long term, or yeah. whether he just makes all his money from selling his books. 
probably um, the latter right <laughs> yeah yeah which but it's, they, they are really good and he does have some really really interesting thought processes but it's, it's definitely not how i'd want to run a portfolio but a lot of the best books are actually like that i find it's the ones where it's a different style to your own so what are the best resources that you use for investing and these can be free or paid yeah absolutely so um i don't really subscribe to too many services other than the ft so i'm a big reader of the ft like to look in all of their columns there's a free one on the ft called alphaville that's fantastic they've got some great writers on there a guy called jamie powell uh, and another guy called bryce elder and they used to do a ft alphaville chat that would give you all of the broker notes at various points in the day um, which they disbanded, but that'd be very nice to get back. Um, but yeah, so the FT is kind of like one of my main go-to resources. In the UK, we've got an RNS platform, which is um, basically gives you all the regulatory announcements from companies. That's called InvestEgate. Um, so you can kind of pick up what AIM companies, you know, FTSE 350 companies are reporting. I'm a big consumer of fund manager notes. So I read uh, Linzel Train, Ennis Small, which is a, a UK hedge fund. They do some fantastic small cap notes every month. They publish one. Poland Capital, which is a US hedge fund. They've got fantastic writers that really focus on small and mid cap uh, American and international companies, but they've got some really good sort of thought pieces and perspectives there. Bally Gifford. Uh, so they have a trust magazine, which is a quarterly magazine, which is um, pretty much essential reading. If you're you're an investor, you can get a nice glossy magazine shipped to your door. So well worth going on their website and taking a look at that. Uh, also Miller Value, which is a US value-based hedge fund. Um, Bill Miller, he writes various notes, I think on a quarterly basis. And then uh, I've got down here Crossing Wall Street, which is uh, a guy named Eddie Elfenbein, he's actually on Twitter. I think he's got something like 60,000 followers, so he's quite popular. But um, he runs a, an ETF called the, I think it's the CWS ETF, which basically focuses on 20 to 25 companies that he holds. Uh, and he boots five companies out a year and puts five companies back in. So, you know, you've got some of these companies that he's held for 10, 13 years. Uh, and they're very kind of high quality businesses that he provides continual updates on. So that's a really good asset to have. And obviously podcasts. So I listen to a couple, a lot more in the US. Obviously, I, I listen to uh, the investor way. <laughs> but in the US, I listen to The Compound and Friends, which is um, Josh Brown. And Bloomberg's got a couple of good podcasts, such as uh, Odd Lots and uh, Masters in Business with Barry Ritholz. Uh, that's really good from a sort of a business perspective too uh, and I think that's it probably in terms of resources what, what podcast do you listen to Sam? So for podcasts I mean I, I do actually listen to most of the Motley Fool ones um, I think they're quite even though a lot of like the news ones you sort of, you've already seen it on Twitter and um, it's quite interesting to just hear their thoughts I like Rule Breaker Investing with David Gardner I, I just think he's he's very very good is the I, I can't remember what it's might be like the Quality Shares podcast or something like that. The new one that Phil Oakley and John Human have just launched, which is UK focused. I'm, I'm enjoying that. It's basically the same podcast they used to do at the Investors Chronicle. So that's back when they were working there. That's a good one. I really like Value After Hours. I think that's really, really, I get a lot from that. 
Bill Brewster's got a podcast where he does like long form interviews and he's, he gets, I mean, with that one, I actually pick and choose the episodes because there's somewhere I read about it and it's, it's more of like a business thing than an investing one. But he's this, yeah. when you pick and choose your episodes, he's, he's got some really fantastic interviews on there. I'm just trying to think if there's any others. I probably, I probably am forgetting some, um, but yeah, those, those are the main podcasts that I listen to. Yeah, I used to listen to. Um, I think it was the Alpha podcast. That was it. Yeah, that's what it was. A couple of months ago with um, with Phil Oakley. So um, no, it's, yeah, the new ones. The new ones good. I'm I'm enjoying it. I think, I think it's definitely if you if you're looking for another UK focused podcast, I think that's probably the one I'd recommend. Who's the um, kind of main? Would would you call them a podcaster or <laughs> a um, speaker? It's, well, it's what on that one. Yeah. It's Phil, Phil Oakley and John Human. So I don't know if like you, you'd listen to the Alpha podcast that much, but they, they were the guys that used... So John Human used to host it every week and he'd usually get... Phil Oakley was the guy who'd come on and talk about... Well, just talk about the stocks a lot because they covered other topics. But they let, they both left the Investors Chronicle a few months ago and they've gone and started their own uh, website called investbashability.co.uk, I think. And they've started oh, a podcast okay. as well. But I'd say the podcast and the website are probably both worth checking out because they are, they are both fantastic. Phil Oakley... He's actually written a book as well, uh, How to Pick Quality Shares, which I've not actually got around to reading yet, but it is on my list. I think John might possibly have read it, but yeah, I haven't read it yet. So who do you look up to as an investor? Um, yeah, so um, I think really, you know, the greats that, you know, everyone looks up to being your Buffett, your Peter Lynch, your Terry Smith, the Bally Gifford guys, so Tom Slater and James Anderson, and they've done some fantastic things. I don't know how much you know about Ennis Moore. Uh, the fund manager in the UK. Do you have you heard of them before? No, I haven't. So they're a um, a small fund that you know they take some really really incredible bets on various companies, and they managed to snuff out Wirecard pretty quickly. And they held a short against Wirecard for a long long time, which was tumultuous for them, as I'm sure it would be. But you know, in the end, they came true, and they they picked out quite a few companies in the past where they get suspicious of and they do turn out to be frauds. So um, really interesting guys and they kind of the work that they do and kind of share is really worth looking at, especially if you're interested in that kind of small mid cap European and UK space. They're fantastic in that area. Some UK private investors I also look up to. So I've said about Robbie Burns, Simon Thompson and Bill Oakley, uh, as um, we've discussed already. So they're probably three as well in the UK. So yeah, I think that's probably my kind of main list. But what about yourself? Oh, it'd probably be all the, the big hitters, probably. It'd be sort of your Mungas, your Buffets, Manish Prabhai, Terry Smith, Nick Train. Just trying to think. But what do you think about um, the kind of dispersion of Smith and Train? Do you, do you think that that gap will close or do you think that Nick needs to kind of change his, his style as such to kind of close that gap. I don't know, to be honest. I don't actually... So I, I read, the, I read the, uh, the Terry Smith book recently. I don't actually follow either of them particularly closely day to day. So I'll read... I know Terry Smith's doing really well. With Nick Train, it's more like if I come across him and like if he's got something to say about, you know, if I see he's done an interview or something, I will just go and listen to it. I don't actually monitor... His performance, I just like listening to what he has to say. So I probably aren't very well placed to actually comment on the dispersion um, just because I don't actually like active fo- actively follow either of their funds. I, yeah, I just like listening to what they have to say. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, that's interesting. I think, um, you know, over the 
obviously, as you said, Terry Smith's been doing you know, so well as a fund manager that it kind of you you end up moving so far away from the pack. But Nick Train's kind of definitely struggled over the last year or two. I think his fund is e- either flat or slightly negative for the year in a year that a lot of you know, the competition have done pretty well. And I think uh, if you if you read his notes over the last six months, you'll see a lot of kind of, uh, how can you how can you call it? Uh, a lot of mild, mild apologetic sort of comments as to kind of the performance and the lack of technology sort of based stocks in his portfolio and the fact that he'd he'd rather hang on to his companies that kind of can leverage technological change uh, to kind of progress than the technology companies themselves. So, you know, he uses Disney as an example, kind of leveraging streaming mm. um, in comparison to say owning the you know technology itself. So it's quite an interesting sort of paradigm there. Yeah, I mean, having like um, caveated it by saying like I don't actually follow his performance that closely, I would say that over the long, I mean, a year or two is not that long anyway. I would say over the long term, I would probably be quite confident back in Nick Train to do well. <laughs> so yeah, no, so I wouldn't be losing sleep for him. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I agree. I think uh, almost it's one of those things that people kind of you don't want to measure your performance too closely if if that kind of specific fund gives you access to a group of companies or an asset or a style that kind of diversifies you away from a lot of the technology names mm. that are in other funds it's, it's got a place doesn't it and yeah um, i mean one of one of the guys i follow quite closely it's a guy called tobias carlisle he's the guy that hosts the value after hours podcast and he's a deep value manager over in the us and since about 2010 value's just been doing horrendous and yeah. so he's he's basically had a decade of underperformance and he's completely he completely owns it completely but he's you know he still thinks that you know over the long term these markets have proven to be cyclical and event and value will have its day in the sun again and you know 10 years in he's still sticking to his guns but i think just because you know you, we could easily it's not inconceivable we, especially with some of the values right now we could go through a period of 10 years time of 10 years where a lot of the growth stocks now don't move and they're just growing into their valuations because if you've got a company that's at 40 50 times sales it, mm. the business could perform very well and the, the price might not actually change so I, I think the actual performance of like whatever strategy they're using doesn't necessarily reflect on whether they're worth listening to because i mean Tobias Carlyle, for example, he could continue to underperform for the next 10 years. I'd still quite happily listen to his podcast every week because he you can just tell yeah. he knows his stuff. But yeah. Um, so which Twitter accounts would you recommend following the most? Um, so I'm actually quite new to Twitter. So um, I kind of I joined Twitter probably eight months ago or so. And to be honest, I probably wouldn't necessarily be on Twitter if it wasn't for the purpose of kind of sharing what I'm doing and kind of growing uh, viewership for for my kind of website and, and service so I think my kind of initial experiences with Twitter have been a bit kind of negative shall we say in, in some of the kind of stuff that I follow and see and I think I'm a little bit skeptical of some of the stuff that I see on there so I could probably benefit from following you know a, a pruned list of, of good accounts so I'm probably better off listening than uh, dictating here. but there are a couple uh, that I do uh, follow and that was uh, really kind of accounts that give me access to primary information so librarian capital I like because uh, he just kind of summarizes results uh, in a kind of very simple way and um, there's a guy covering Europe uh, and I don't think he's that well known his 
name is Paul, but his Twitter handle is Stocks Market, S-T-O-X-X Market. Uh, and he does fantastic kind of summaries of quality European companies. And then in the UK, we've got a couple that I follow, which is a, a guy called Ron Boyd, uh, a lady called Aston Girl, and then a Quality Share Surfer, uh, and, a, and a couple others there. So, but yeah, as, as I said, I'm not not really an expert on Twitter or follow lists yet. So uh, yeah, be, be interested to hear from you. <laughs> I'd say I'd actually recommend probably like if you just go through the list of people we've had on the show, if you just find them on Twitter, I'd recommend just going down their follow list and my own as well. And just what I find is just any that looks quite good, you can follow them. And then, you know, if after a couple of weeks, you, you don't really like what they're saying, it's very easy to just unfollow them. So that's the way I do it periodically. I just go down someone else's list who like, I know that I like what they have to say and the way they think. And then I'll just have to see if there's any more that I haven't come across yet. Do you think Twitter's a, a useful service for you as an investor? I think it's incredibly useful. I get a lot from it, but it's, you know, it's, it's probably taken me, you know, a, few, a long time to hone my follow list, you know, and there's even some people who, are, you know, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have said, well, you've got to follow this person really. And then now it's, my views have changed a bit or they've started and I've, I actually wouldn't necessarily, and I've unfollowed them since. And it does, it does change, but no, I, I think if you can get the follow list right, it's a really, really useful tool, but, if you don't get it right, it can be quite frustrating and not not a very good place to be. It's quite it's difficult in that respect because it is you do have to you do have to really hone your follow list. It's um, but I, no, I think it is putting the, worth putting the time in to be honest. Yeah, there's no um, there's no regulator, is there? So you no. can just get such a, a crazy bunch of people talking about you know a load of a load of rubbish. So um, I've I've kind of witnessed a few things the. The rise and fall of uh, guy, what's his name? Uh, Puru. Yeah, I used to really Did like Puru. He, I used to really like. He was one where I would put him. On, I would have put him in my top five a year ago, and now he's like, he just sort of seems, he seems to just lose the plot a little bit. To be honest, that's probably the you, most you had people person. people tracking his trades as such, and sort of seeing that he'd announced that he's kind of bought something, and then wouldn't uh, you know it would crash and then you know he's he's not holding it and yeah and there's, there's, like, like there's, there's one time where it was going into earnings he'd he'd sites you know it's, it did this bullish tweet on a company i can't remember the company now and he put at the end of the tweet i'm long one hour later he did a tweet saying he'd sold and it's like <laughs> like it's, how long's an hour it's uh but yeah and, and then there's a few like i, I think what did it for me with puro because his, his, his track record is very good. I know some people do like to like try and like analyze the tweets and stuff. And I, I do actually believe that he has a very, very good track record. I think he's in the last few years, he's up about 400% or something silly, which, you know, because he is basically in the highest growth companies that perform very well. I do find it mm. believable. What it was for me was when he started posting about Bitcoin, because he quite clearly did not understand it. And I've, I've got no issue with people like commenting on Bitcoin and stuff. But if I get a sense that someone's talking about something and they, it's just, it, it comes across, I think, with Bitcoin, you can tell when someone's just attacking it and they don't know their stuff. And it was very, very obvious that he just didn't understand it and hadn't even put the time in trying to understand it. And I just didn't, I just felt like reading his tweets were just wasting my time at that point. So that was what led yeah. to me on following it. So he was taking a, a negative sort of stance on Bitcoin. Yeah. And it was a lot, a lot of it was like the same arguments that like, I mean, I've heard a lot of the arguments against Bitcoin before and he wasn't offering any new takes. And there are a lot of arguments that people can make against Bitcoin, but they're actually quite uninformed arguments. And like, if someone had taken the time to understand it, they wouldn't be making the points they were making. There's possibly different points they would be making, but you, you can, I think... 
if you spend enough time like learning about Bitcoin, you can very quickly get a sense of whether someone else who's talking about it, whether they're criticizing it or praising it, has knows what they're actually talking about. And with him, it was just painfully obvious that he didn't. And the problem is he was tweeting about it a lot. Um, so like it was just it was it was just annoying me. So I followed him. But I'd still have him on the show if he's listening. <laughs> yeah, well, he's got quite a large following. It's probably net positive for you. Oh, yeah, definitely uh... have him on. Um, <laughs> but, um, so are you, a, are you a Bitcoin holder yourself? I was until recently. So I actually sold a couple okay. of months ago. It wasn't anything to do with valuation. It was just that I, I might need the money personally in the next, probably the next 12 months. And it was a case of I could sell some stocks or I could sell my Bitcoin and the Bitcoin was the amount of money I might need. It's just one of the things, isn't it? If you know you're going to need it in your personal life. I mean, Bitcoin at the time, it was about 46K that I sold it. And I just thought, you know, I could have held on and, you know, maybe it would, maybe I could have sold it at 100K in a few months. But equally, if I found myself selling it at 30K and then I had to go and like raid my stock portfolio as well for the cash, I would have been kicking myself. So that's why I sold it. It wasn't anything to do with valuation, but I still really like it. I, I do back it and I, I think, I, I I would like I well I expect I'll be buying it buy it again in the future even if it is at a higher price I almost view it yeah. as like an alternative to like saving in a bank account I know it's silly because it's like very very volatile but I think once I'm in a position where like I might not need the money in the next twelve months what I'll probably do is like I'll just go back to having a monthly amount where I just put it into Bitcoin and almost use that as like my my way of saving um, I know I've got like the stocks as well, but yeah, that's sort of what I use it for. Um, so yeah, I don't have any Bitcoin, but that's not actually a reflection when, of my opinion on when it. You, when you talk about valuation of Bitcoin, is there any kind of concept or mechanism you're using it to value against, or is it just the arbitrary price? Well, it's not so much the price, it'd be the market cap. It's kind of like a stock in that respect, yeah. but I just think for the market cap, it depends on what you think it's going to be used for. But for me, it, the digital gold argument holds a lot of weight. I think it's a unique asset. I think any any cryptocurrency that's come along since i don't think to me it, it just doesn't have the same value bitcoin has it doesn't have the same reputation it doesn't have the same level of security in the network and for, for me that the best argument is the digital gold argument and i think if you look at the digital gold argument i think bitcoin's got a market cap at the minute of i don't know like maybe one and a half trillion i'm just making up a number gold's about eight trillion and then so it's again it's, is that right yeah in fact, I, I can't. I, th- I think it's something like that. Gold's about eight to ten trillion, I think. So it's it's something like at the minute. I think Bitcoin's market cap's about ten percent the size of gold's. I I don't. I I think it could be a lot higher based on that. I mean, it's still quite wishy washy and it is very very subjective. There's no reason because I mean, it could function as a store of value whether the market cap's a trillion or a hundred trillion. It, it would still perform the same function, which is where where it's quite difficult valuing it. But I just think. A lot of it's supply and demand. And if you have enough people that are using it as store of value, you, you almost end up with a lot of the supply that's taken off the market. And, you know, where you've got that 1 trillion market cap or 1.5 trillion, I mean, how many of those Bitcoins have been lost forever? How many of them are in wallets that people can no longer access? So then if you look at this, you know, the, the market cap of what's actually available, you get to a smaller and smaller amount. And I, I think, I think I, I just look at it and think, well, that, that, this could be a lot a lot lot bigger and i think especially when you look at what's going on with in terms of like central banks all around the world just um devaluing their currencies as quickly as possible i think having like a global way that everyone can opt out of that for me bitcoin seems a solution so that's how i think about it but it is it is difficult that's interesting i, I i'd be interested to hear your your thoughts on 
what, if anything, do you think would be the downfall of Bitcoin? I've seen some of the stuff where, in theory, a quantum computer would be able to overpower the blockchain and start rewriting it. And then at that point, the security is gone and you can't trust it. Um, obviously, I don't know how far away we are from quantum computing. And if we can have quantum computing, why couldn't you have quantum resistance? So it's that's, that could be like 30 years in the future anyway. I, in terms of the other stuff, I don't. I don't really worry about like governments banning it and stuff. I think people would continue. To, I struggle to see a scenario where like governments around the world all ban it. I don't necessarily think there's even a reason to ban it either. Yeah. It's... Here's a question: once the once every single Bitcoin is mined, does the carbon intensity of Bitcoin then you know plummet off a cliff? Well, it's not to do. Not it's not to, to do with how many. Well, I mean, the last Bitcoin won't be mined until the year I think it's about twenty one forty, so we won't be around to find out. But what will happen is, or what should happen is, the the block reward gets smaller and smaller over that time. So the amount of new Bitcoins being released every ten minutes, and then what will happen is, in theory, if it works, there'll just be a transaction fee instead, and the transaction fee would be enough that people still have an incentive to mine it. Um, but the, the amount of carbon it's emitting, it's not actually anything to do with the Bitcoin protocol itself. It's just what happens when lots of people are plugging their computing power into trying to mine it. So if you're in a position where in 10 years time, twice as much computing power is going into trying to mine it, all other things being equal, it's going to be emitting twice as much carbon unless they're using like renewable sources to do the mining. So if you've got like a rig that's being powered by solar or something, then that, that would, but um, yeah, there's not. I don't, I don't see it having a huge impact because I just think as long as Bitcoin itself is valuable, people are going to be trying to mine it, even if it's unsuccessful and even though it is really, really competitive to mine it now and really difficult. I think if people have like some spare computing power, they do just plug it in and, well, it's not unfortunate because it is also, it is what gives the network security. But in theory, there's no reason why all the, the computing power that's going into mining it couldn't be powered by renewable resources. It's kind of like, it's like anything else in that respect. Interesting. So what do you know now that you wish you knew when you started investing and what advice would you give to yourself when you were just starting out? Yeah, so I think um, good good question. Hindsight's a, a wonderful thing. So I think, you know, part of investing is kind of learning the lessons that I guess you don't learn unless you kind of make some mistakes and kind of learn from them as you go. So I think if I kind of gave myself all of these tips when I started you know you'd never know what you'd uh, kind of turn out whether it be the same now or not so um but I think the main kind of things that I'd focus on for other investors would be basically number one don't buy you know junk companies Terry Smith's got a great kind of catchphrase there which is don't expect a good return from a bad asset um so you know very very interested in risk adjusted return so I don't want to be taking lots of risk and be, you know, worried about potential blow up. So, you know, just avoiding companies with low profit margins, you know, in highly cyclical industries or industries in secular decline. You know, these are the sorts of things that I really want to to avoid and have kind of helped me out as I've kind of journeyed as an investor. I'd probably like to kind of understand a bit more about valuation kind of lessons on valuation so that ties in a bit to the kind of the bad companies piece but you know just because something is cheap on paper doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be a good investment so just trying to understand that and then on the flip side of valuation just because something looks very expensive again it's not 
you know necessarily something that's going to be costly to you and i think you know in that really is a message there of kind of don't be afraid to buy something excellent you know if it's a business that's changing the world or changing its specific industry or you've got that feeling that you know this business really is a category killer uh, and it's going to be a big thing i think you can kind of forego some of the valuation and you know worrying about the cost especially if you're starting out you know if you're a young investor you've got you know a, a massive career ahead of you that if you like a company a lot taking a small position you know even if the valuation is quite high you know prevents you from losing out on that company's growth and it also gives you the opportunity that yeah if the valuation does come back a bit you know you can add some more so um i think that would be kind of the main piece uh, and then another piece around really kind of getting to the primary source of information and that's what i've really learned through this process behind 20s trader and doing my research that you know you can you can read as many secondary sources you know articles or you know pieces of information about a company as you want but unless you're reading the annual report looking at investor presentations listening to the earnings calls which I can uh, give a quick plug. There's an earnings call app that's fantastic. Uh, you know, you don't even have to go on the internet and look at uh, a company's earnings calls anymore. You can just go on your phone, type in earnings call, download the app, and it's got hundreds of companies that you can, you know, fast forward the speed or listen at your leisure. So that's a really good tool that I use as well. Um, so getting to that primary source of information for me has been you know, really important to kind of understand the company and its trajectory without having, you know, someone's lens or, or bias potentially affecting, you know, your thoughts on the company. What are the biggest mistakes you've made in investing? Uh, I think probably you can kind of split that question up into two different kind of themes. And, you know, the first being stock specific mistakes. So I've kind of covered a bit about buying bad companies but you know early on in my investing career I was doing that to a higher extent so bought some legacy businesses such as Lloyd's and uh, you know cyclical companies small mining companies that you know never never work out as well as the uh, you know, current shareholders are expecting um, you know some get through the net but you know, many many uh, falter uh, and then you know I bought some UK support services businesses and these just had, you know, very poor margins. They were cheap, a lot of cash flow, but you know, you can run into a lot of, of trouble there too. So that's kind of a, a stock specific, you know, area. Another stock specific area I've made a mistake in the past was looking at companies and purchasing companies that I've got a lack of visibility into their revenue stream. And so that really is a key area that I think about in my approach now is if I'm having to wait from, you know, quarter to quarter or, you know, in the UK, we don't do quarterly updates. We do, you know, interim reports, trading updates and, you know, year end results. If I've got to wait for six months without seeing any visibility of how this company is performing, that's, you know, an issue for me and, you know, can't really get a good insight, can't really get an edge. Uh, and, you know, you're kind of just waiting to hear that update, whether it's good or bad. So that for me was a real area that I, I try to find companies now that I can kind of get a good oversight. I can give you an example into a mistake there was buying 
company called Network International. Have you heard of Network International? I've never heard of it, no. Uh, so it's a um, Middle East and North African payments company, quite similar to a company that you've sort of mentioned on the, on the show before, Airtel Africa. This company, I think, is more in the space of you know physical card and merchant acquiring and things like that rather than you know mobile payments. But it's actually got a partnership with MasterCard sort of throughout the region to grow uh, its business alongside sort of MasterCard uh, in, in North Africa and the Middle East. I think MasterCard took a 10% you know, equity of the business when Network International IPO'd on the stock exchange in London a couple of years ago. So I looked at that and you know I wanted some exposure to the area. Payments was very hot. The company's financials looked okay. But there was that massive, you know, blind spot of visibility into network international's revenues you know i i have no idea you know one month to the next how these revenues earnings flow cash flow is going to change all i have to do is wait for this uh, report because it's you know something that you just can't get oversight of and so i guess the kind of results of that are twofold one you don't know you know firstly is the company reporting exactly what you think it is you know we've seen other companies in similar geographies and areas there was a company called nmc healthcare which was a you know FTSE 100 darling was a medical sort of a hospital services provider in the arab emirates it was doing great numbers and that turned out to be a fraud restated earnings and, and the shares crashed and i'm not sure whether it's on the FTSE 100 anymore so we've had kind of those situations before so you know could turn out to be one of those but two you know just because there's a lack of visibility of revenues you then are in a situation where if someone puts out a short report or you know a bearish view you've got nothing to back that up you know you really you know, you're holding on to your hat as such because you've not got an edge to give you extra conviction so that's really an area that I kind of made a mistake in and kind of learned from so you know happy to have that discussion whether you think that's relevant to your investment in Airtel but um yeah. I mean to be honest it depends like for me like when you're actually like looking in I mean Airtel I think the reports you know the annual reports have got for me a level of information I'm happy with I've read a few other articles about like the general competitive environment in Africa for me a lot of it I know it's like quite a wishy-washy thing but it's like when I'm reading the reports and stuff I need to be able to like actually visualize the business and what it's doing and with Airtel I, th- I think I can do that but as an example like we looked at this is a f- months ago now we looked at a company called Stoneco which is kind of like trying to be like the PayPal of Latin America yeah I know them. and I, I, I really struggled looking through like the investor presentations and the annual reports. I struggled to just picture how the business works. I don't know why. I just couldn't. I, it's always harder when it's in a foreign country and it's not like some big US business like Facebook. And it's like, because you, you don't ever see it in action and you probably never will. But like, for example, like with, with, um, with Stonecut, I just couldn't, I just couldn't like get it in my head how the business all works and how it's sort of clicked together and I don't know why I just I just couldn't understand it whereas with Airtel I've just not had that issue I think it's it's been fairly easy to understand and I I guess as well like the normal telecoms business for me is attractive enough on its own because it's so cheap and the growth is still so high and I guess with the the Airtel money side that potential is obviously huge how they're executing like on a day-to-day I just don't know but I mean it's it's very clearly coming through in the numbers I mean when when they're doing 50 50 odd billion of transaction volume over there 
and that's that's up like 50 percent year over year it's not something i'm particularly worried about and then with the with the actual telecom side obviously they're on like well it's mainly pay as you go so i guess that that does make it a bit harder to track how it's going to do month to month but I think with 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 phone providers, like, there is obviously going to be like quite a large element of cyclicality as long as they're able to maintain the customers. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of. I don't think I really answered the question, but that is how I think about it. <laughs> no, it's just, it's it's what everyone's comfortable in, isn't it? And uh, I think that there are probably some similar companies in my portfolio that I'm kind of, you know, you're you're happy to take the kind of, you know, on on the balance of probability, you're quite happy to take the risk and sort of sit back but um there are just a few that you know in the past i think i think it's mainly you know when there's trouble that's where you really sort of start to look at it and go hmm you know was i was i a little bit kind of far removed from it and i think Mm. you know you're you're lucky if that doesn't happen but yeah in the case of network international there was a there was a short report going around and i i didn't have it couldn't see it and I know nothing. So you're sat there, you know, completely you know, unable to really come to a decision. And then, you know, you end up panic selling and taking a loss and then thinking, you know, really, I had no, you know, any other company that you can go and see, touch, feel, or just understand, you know, whether they're doing business. <laughs> yeah, you know, that is that sort of thing that, for me, I like to have that clarity and that conviction. Yeah. I mean, one thing I do try and do is I try and like search for the company on Twitter occasionally and see how like people who are actually like, you know, because you will get people in Africa who are actually using it. I mean, that's that's obviously like a very restricted data set and you can, you know, you know, it's useful, but you certainly can't rely on it. But that's that's the only <laughs> real way I can try and get a sense of it. Um, but even then with any business, you usually just get people trying to like complain or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah. so again, you, you don't see all sides of it. Um, what are your thoughts on current valuations in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a, it's the most important question, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I think, you know, there's no doubt that it's frothy. There's, you know, there are areas of the market that are in very, very you know, stretched valuation territory. But, you know, you've just got some companies that just continue to surge higher. And, you know, to a certain extent, you almost get tired of talking about a bubble or, you, you get tired of just talking about valuations over such a long time when they just keep seem to rising. So, um, you know, one thing I've read recently in a note from Poland Capital, they map out on a graph 40 years of interest rates. And, you know, basically it's slightly, you know, up and down, but it's a diagonal curve downwards. And, you know, now we're looking at, I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the Treasury... The ten-year yield on the treasury is one point five, or one point one five, something like that. So, you're looking at yields on bonds that are, you know, uninvestable. You know, if you're looking at a an earnings ratio as an investor in a bond, you're looking at a, you know, a ratio of like 65, 70 times that you're willing to pay for a return there. So, what does that say? You know, it, it either says investors are so scared that they're willing to pay, you know, put billions of dollars into bonds because they're worried about the market or, you know, they're obviously expecting changes. So I think, you know, looking at that interest rate decline over a period of 40 years, that's exactly why we are where we are, but we don't know what's yet to come. So I think, 
you know, personally, I will be staying out of the super high, you know, potentially bubble areas of the market. I own a couple of very highly valued sort of software companies, but, you know, I've come to that kind of space and understand it for, for myself more as an insurance policy. Uh, you know, if these companies go on to be the next big thing and, you know, they go on to do the sorts of growth that investors are currently expecting, you know, I want to make sure I'm prepared to, to own a bit of that. But uh, I don't personally think I can be kind of you know, engaging in areas of the market that are trading at that kind of extreme valuation. So despite that, there are areas of value. So the guy I was speaking about earlier, uh, a guy called Eddie Elfenbein from Crossing Wall Street, he's bringing up stocks all the time that are in those sorts of good value areas of the market. Um, you know, if it's not super trendy, you can find some really good, you know, good US growth stocks that are trading at decent valuations. Um, so yeah, it's really where you look, I think. What about, what's your opinion on it? I think there's definitely a lot of froth, but I'd be inclined to agree with you. I think there is still value out there. I think you've got to, you certainly got to look hard for it, but it's definitely there. I mean, even stuff like, for example, like I'd say Disney at the minute, I think when you factor in what Disney Plus could be, I think that's fairly reasonable. Some of the growthier companies, like for example, I've got Peloton, which I think, you know, compared to again, some of the, some of the really, you know, if you compare it to a snowflake or something, I think, I think the valuation on that's pretty reasonable if it can deliver what I think it can deliver in terms of the subscriber numbers. All the stocks in my portfolio that you'd go and analyst and say, well, that's a growth stock. I can quite comfortably say, well, here's why I think quite at the current valuation is quite cheap. And there's, you know, there's some of those businesses where if they were trading at, you know, some of the sales multiples that some of the other ones are, they wouldn't, they just wouldn't be in my portfolio. I know it's always difficult deciding when to sell and stuff, but like as an example, like Etsy's a business I really like, and that's I don't know the exact valuation at the minute. I'm just, I'm going to guess and say it's 20 times sales. If it was 60 or 80 times sales, like some of these other businesses, would I be holding <laughs> on to it? Probably not. I don't know how big I think, it, like, you know, it's, it's difficult to say, well, what's, a, what's almost like, what's a terminal value? How big do I think this business can get? And with Etsy, it's about a $30 billion business at the minute. I think with the growth, it can still deliver. I think it's such a fantastic business. I, I love, I love using the platform. I look at it and I, I just, I mean, this is obviously a very, very basic version, but I just think at 30 billion, I, I think it can be worth more than 30 billion, definitely. If it was worth it, 100. It can, it can 10x from here. Yeah. Right, really. if, if, whereas if, you know, if it's 100, 200 billion now and the sales are exactly the same, it's like, well, maybe it can get to a point where it justifies that valuation, but, you know, it's really got to deliver. And then how much, you know, how many of those returns have been pulled forward? Because I think, for example, mm. if you're paying 60 or 80 times sales for a business, if you want to beat, the market over the next 20 years that business really has to deliver growth it's, it's and i think that's what people don't get it's like well maybe the business can grow enough to justify the current valuation but you're looking to get a market beating return from it and you might not get that from the current valuation yeah it's kind of like, the, like, like snowflake where that's trading at like 100 times sales or something ridiculous and it's like you know how you know you can think it's the best business in the world but you know, a hundred times sales, how much of that growth is already priced in? Because I'd argue a lot of it is. Mm. Unless it's growing at, uh, I don't even know what Snowflake's growing at. <laughs> but then even, I think it's like, I think it's actually like, it's probably about a hundred percent a year, but how many, how many years does it need to do that? It needs to do it multiple years in a row and that growth is going to slow as it gets bigger. And it's, it's a lot of it. It's, it's more to do with the risk, isn't it? Cause I guess like a hundred times sales, it could beat the market, but the, you know, it's much higher risk at that point because it needs to really deliver on the growth. 
to beat, you know, for the stock to beat the market. Because a lot, I mean, it's, I guess when you look at Tesla at the minute, like I know people say it's an energy company and all this, but like how many cars and how many solar roofs do they have to sell to justify a trillion dollar valuation? And are they going to get that? Apparently only 4 billion to add 100 billion to its market cap. Well, exactly, yeah. So it's, and again, it's like, you know, even if they're at a point, let's say Tesla, let's say it's never going to be a cheap stock. Yeah. Well, certainly not for a long time. Let's say they get to a point, and like I said, I don't, I don't know what sales are actually at the minute, but let's say they get to a point where the earnings are 50 billion a year, which is an insane number. I mean, at the current valuation, that would be a PE of 20, which is quite pricey if, you know, if it's not got much, you know, say that's the maximum. I mean, earnings of 50 billion, when you look at the size of the business now, that is insane growth. And then for that to be at a PE of 20 at the current valuation, it's like, well, again, how... How do you get, where do those future, if you're buying it now at a trillion dollar valuation, where do you think the market beating returns are coming from? And I'd, I'd struggle, I struggle with, like, I'd say Tesla for me, as good a business as it is, as impressive as it is, as much as they could go on and dominate, like people think they can. I just, again, like, I, I think it's, I just don't see how most of that isn't priced in. I think if you were buying it today, it is extremely high risk. Because I mean, if you say the market's going to go, let's say it's going to go up 10% a year for the next 10 years, is Tesla going to beat that from a starting point of a trillion? Because, I mean, what's that going to be at the end? You're then talking, you know, in 10 years for you to beat the market, you probably need it to be at like two and a half, three trillion. And again, they've got to sell a lot of cars to justify that. So, yeah, that's a bit of a rant, but that's my answer. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on Tesla. I think that's that's one of the, you know, such an interesting space of the market. But I think going back to what I said earlier a bit, I think, you know, you've got to, some of these emerging companies like Tesla, you know, three, four years ago, this is the lesson. I think you've got to own a bit of some mm. of these companies as an insurance policy. You know, I think that, you know, we can all laugh at Tesla's valuation now, but, you know, we're, we're on the wrong side of the argument. Well, you know, the, yeah. The, I mean, when we, people that, when we did the Flosser interview, yeah. Tesla was an 85x for him. And I thought the valuation was insane at that point. Yeah. He's sitting on 120x now. So, you know, Flosser was obviously right. But Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, they, I mean, they've done incredibly well. but And then again, there's still the argument that if you look at, you know, if you look at the amount of money Google pays Apple to be the leading search engine on their platform, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to misquote it here, but it's something in the, 10 billion plus in a realm that you know that can that sort of agreement can change you know a stock's you know, valuation or, or just kind of the conceptualization of its value you know once you've installed such an amazing technology and hardware that everyone uses there's then these kind of new ways that you can extract value from it and i think you know we'll we'll see whether a trillion stands you know stands up to be the right valuation for it but i think it's it's certainly you know it's in tesla's intrinsic value is a lot higher than i probably deem it mm. to be <laughs> well i would say i actually looked at ford the other day and ford needs to yeah. 16x to get to tesla's market cap yeah that's ridiculous that's unbelievable i, I couldn't i couldn't actually fathom that but anyway, um, so what are your thoughts on current valuations in the UK? Yeah, again, interesting situation. I, I kind of find the UK a bit more perplexing because of a few reasons. People say it's cheap a lot, 
you know, you'll, you'll hear from every pundit that the UK is cheap. But for me, I look at UK stocks and if you're a good, you know, seriously good business operating in the UK, you trade at a pretty significant significant premium, I think. Um, you know, some of the small caps in the UK that, you know, investors know and love or, you know, whether you're looking at the FTSE 100, if you're like a, a Halmer uh, or a Croder or, you know, Spirex, Arco, these sorts of companies that are like the equivalents in the US where they can just churn out consecutive years of, you know, earnings growth. I think they are, you know, pretty, pretty well valued. There's certainly no one, there's certainly no Halmer shareholder sat there saying the multiple should be double. But then there are, again, kind of pockets of, you know, kind of strange valuation theory that, that you've got going on, especially in the smaller tech growth business area. I think that that's a a real area that the UK is undervalued just because there are no big tech investors in the UK. So stocks like Darktrace, for instance, people say that that's overvalued. But if you look at what an equivalent business in the US that's, you know, doing Darktrace's sort of growth in the sector, you know, a hot sector like cybersecurity, it's probably trading at double the sales multiple that Darktrace is. Boohoo's another one. It's not a tech business, but it's obviously internet enabled fast growth you know their their equivalent in america is a company called revolve which is exactly the same business model you know instagram led marketing fast fashion quick turnarounds cheap clothes exactly the same business model trades on three four times the multiple that boohoo does you know that's just you know that's just strange and boohoo's growing even in the u.s boohoo's growing at twice the speed that Revolve is, you know, look at Zalando, which is a German fashion, online fashion company, that's trading at 80 times earnings, you know, Boohoo's trading at 20. So I think you can end up with situations in the UK where, you know, a depressed area of the market or, you know, a negative reaction can really have an impact and then no one's left holding it and you end up with a very, very compressed valuation, which is good for us as investors, as long as we can get a, you know, a, re- a return to the norm or a reflection. And that sometimes happens through acquisitions, which you're seeing a lot of at the moment, where we're having every US company under the sun from every industry buying UK companies you know, across the board. So that's clearly a sign that there are pockets of, of undervalued. What, what do you think about that, Sam? I agree. Um, I do think the market generally is quite cheap. I think if you look at you know, the UK stocks compared to their peers, it's a lot, it is a lot cheaper. I think it's quite strange considering like, you know, a lot of it, it probably goes back to interest rates and, you know, they're, they're pretty much the same here as they are in the U S there's no, there's no reason why the, I think, you know, more people, obviously more people follow the U S and pay attention. So, so that is why, but I mean, when we're doing the, I mean, you can, you can hear it on the show every week when we're doing the UK businesses compared to when we do the U S businesses, there is clearly a big difference. And like, for example, like, you know, there's some there's some UK businesses where they're quality quality businesses, and then we'll get to the valuation, and it'll be like 30, 40 times earnings, and me and John will just be like, bloody hell, I'm not I'm not paying that. <laughs> and then you get to the US bit, and it's 30, 40 times sales, and it's like, well, actually, you know, it's a, you know, it's fairly cheap. If they can, like, an example is actually, and it's it's a company we're going to talk about later, but like Team Seventeen, we've covered that a couple of times, and the growth rate is pretty good. I think it grows about twenty percent a year. 
last time I looked at it, it was somewhere between 30 and 40 times. I can't remember. Um, if you think they can continue growing at 20% a year, it's probably quite cheap. And if it was in the US, I don't think it would be trading at 30 or 40 times earnings. I think you would be looking at a multiple of sales instead, really. And But because it's in the UK, it's just it's just not followed that much. And there's other ones as well. Again, it's it's another business we're going to talk about later but games workshop i think it's it's a fantastic business if you look at the growth they've delivered in the last 10 years it really is unbelievable what they've done with that business and then you look at it and it's at the minute it's about 30 times earnings and again that seems extremely cheap and you you mentioned boohoo you know we've seen, we've seen the same thing with asos when we looked at it on the show i know asos has also had the ceo just leave but i mean asos and boohoo they're pretty similar businesses. I think if you if you decided you want exposure to that sector, if you had a basket of the two of them at like twenty times earnings, I think I think that'd be you know I think they're both they could both do pretty well. And I I just think again I mean I, I had it on the last interview where I was talking to um, the sloth investor and I was talking to him about Airtel Africa and again it's it's a similar thing to like when me and John have covered it where it's like if that business is listed in the US. if Because, they, they, I mean, it's a bit odd that they chose to list in the UK in the first place, but if they've chosen to list in the US and they've got themselves on like the NASDAQ or something, there's no way it's at 12 times earnings. There's just not, absolutely yeah. no way. Uh, I mean, what, 12 times what sales. What does trade on? <laughs> Jumia's, it's, I mean, it's definitely multiple of sales. I've not looked at it for like a year. From memory, I think like 30 or 40. And Jumia, yeah. when we actually covered it on the show like six months ago, and Jumia, the growth rate was something like 10%. It was really poor. Part of the reason was that they actually, they used to do um, like like first party selling where they were actually like responsible for like the logistics and the delivery themselves. And they've, they've sort of like transitioned out of that to more third party selling. So what's happened is, that, what's happening is the third party is getting bigger whilst the first party is shrinking. So you're getting this artificially low growth rate because the, the growth of the third party is making up for the decline of the first party. But even if you just take out the decline of the first party, the growth rate is still only at 20% a year. And for a company that's that expensive, it just um well and it does it does have like quite it doesn't have the best track record either and it's growing from a very low base as well it's extremely expensive so yeah i, I don't know I, th- I think with the uk when i when i certainly look at businesses i think quality businesses are harder to find but they are definitely there and when you do find them you generally get them at a much much better valuation than you would in the us so i think i almost feel as if the reward for finding them in the uk is probably a lot higher that's my view. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd probably agree with you there. I guess you've, you've just got to kind of caveat it with is, there's no point buying a business on 20 times earnings if you know that it's the exit multiple you're going to get is 20 times earnings. Well, if you think well. the earnings can grow, I suppose of, of that's how But yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think, yeah, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be looking at it and saying, well, this is 10 times earnings here and 100 in the US. So I'm just going to sit there and I'm just going to wait for the, you know, you shouldn't be waiting for a multiple revaluation. And I think if you do get a multiple revaluation, it's more likely to be the US multiple coming down rather than the UK going up. But yeah, I, I think, I guess it's more you get that you get much you get a much higher margin of safety, don't you, with the UK ones? No. Because if you get a business like well, like like Team Seventeen, if that can grow at twenty percent a year, and you're only paying thirty times earnings, even if it stays at thirty times earnings, or, or you know if that business grows at thirty percent a year, you would expect the stock over the long term to to grow by about twenty percent a year in line with the business, assuming the multiple stays the same. But so, how do you think about allocation and position sizing? Uh, yeah, good, good question. So I've, I've got a kind of, I can give you my, my numbers in, in the 
sort of portfolios that I have. So in my personal portfolio, I have 27 stocks uh, and then in a family portfolio, which is a bit of a bigger um, portfolio, I've got 50 names. So I personally am quite, as I said before, a risk adjusted return sort of enthusiast. So my largest position is 8% in the personal portfolio. I think the family one's about four or 5%. So I'm very pro diversification for a few reasons. Firstly, there's a lot of research that's been done uh, and you might have heard it if you follow Bailey Gifford. They've got a professor there whose last name is Bessinbinder. I think his first name's Heinrich or something like that. And so, you know, his theory is that you know, over a long period of time, the majority of stock market returns come from a very specific number of stocks. Um, so if you're not owning, you know, a large tail of stocks or names, it's quite easy to miss out, you know, a good company that goes on to generate, you know, some exponential returns. Uh, and that's why I was talking a bit about that insurance policy of, you know, liking to have a couple of those names, like your Shopify's, uh, your Teslas, for instance, if you if you wanted to, um, I don't think that's that's a problem as long as they're kind of that position is not too big when you initiate it. Uh, there's another piece, obviously, in diversification, uh, and I see a lot of people coming out in favour of you know owning a very very concentrated ten stock, fifteen stock portfolio. And I guess this is because there've been some studies in the past where they look at uh, you know, risk-adjusted returns and how much you're kind of reducing your risk for each stock that you add. And so people usually say that I think after 15 stocks, you're not really decreasing your risk you know, exponentially for each name as you were with the first 15. But actually, if you look into a lot of those studies, what they were using was a random, you know, orientation of picking a stock. So they'd roll a dice and choose the stock that the dice you know landed on. They take a list of S and P five hundred stocks and completely randomly select fifteen names, twenty names, and see how they perform and the risk you know in relation in relation to uh, the performance there. So, kind of what I'm trying to say with that piece is that's all based on a random dice roll. When you look at most people's you know, concentrated portfolios who might have fifteen names that think that they're diversified. They, you know, they're all in similar industries. Uh, you know, they might be five tech stocks, you know, similar geographies, all that sorts of stuff. So I think if you're going to do that kind of 15 stock highly concentrated portfolio, you've got to be careful that you're kind of not having a bias one way or another to kind of over allocate to something specific. And really then you're kind of missing the point of diversification and how that kind of statistical you know study of diversification came about so i think you know looking at it that way that's why i'm quite comfortable over allocating you would say and carrying quite a few names yeah that's just my style really uh, my portfolio is actually about 15 stocks i think um <laughs> what, what do you think about the uh, diversification theory there then i i agree so i, I mean there's, there's there's good arguments on both sides i mean the, the one that really one one thing that really resonated with me was when when i interviewed adam mead of a while ago now i mean he just said for example because he only has like seven stocks in his portfolio or six i can't remember the number and i asked him about that and like he, he just said something along the lines of like well you know how much money do i want to put into my eighth best idea 
And that, that did stick with me a lot. So at the minute, I've got 15 stocks in my portfolio. But I mean, the top positions, Etsy's about 20%, Airtel Africa's 15%, and Mercado Libre is 10%. So the top three are making up um, 45% of the portfolio. I'm actually, I've got a good few, I've probably got about three stocks. So I've got Ibstock, Money Supermarket, and my mind's gone blank on the other one. But there's there's three stocks in the portfolio where I'd say they're probably actually under review. And I'd say okay. under review, they could stay in the portfolio for another few years. I'm pretty slow doing stuff like that. But there's three in the portfolio where like, realistically, I, in the next sort of six to 12 months, I, I could sell those to add to a, another position because I'm not sure but I will spend a long time making my mind. I mean, we covered Ibstock on the show two months ago and it was under review then. I expect when the full year results come out, it's still going to be under review. Um, <laughs> so it's, it, they do get a long time to actually redeem themselves. But I, I, I think there is, I think with running a concentrated portfolio, I think if you do it right, you will obviously get better results Yeah. if you do it right. And it's really difficult. I mean, if it turns out that Airtel Africa is a fraud, that's 15% of my portfolio gone. I need to have a very good year just to make that up. So it, it is higher risk, but equally it's, it's easier to follow the businesses more closely. So I guess as long as you are someone that puts the time in and does the work, it is less likely in a way because it's, it is much easier to follow 15 businesses than say 50. I mean, if you've got 50 in your portfolio, there's no way you can track them all. You, you've just got to accept that and I, I guess they're all going to be different sizes but I think it also it depends what you're comfortable as with, with as well I mean what I found was you know I, I, I did want to keep you know when I when I, earlier on I wanted to keep increasing the number of stocks because you know people talk about like 2025 20, being like that magic number I wanted to try and get to that and then what I found was once I was getting over 15 it was like there was just I just found that there was always a few businesses in there where it's like well I don't really like these as much as my mm. other businesses so why why do I actually own them? For example, like, until fairly recently, I had AutoTrader in there. And AutoTrader is a really, really good business. I do really like it. But it's not as good as Rightmove. So yeah. I just found myself thinking, well, why why don't I just own more Rightmove? So that's what I did. I just sold it and added, I just doubled the Rightmove position. So it's, and, it, and it's riskier, but I, I, as long as as long as long you put the work in and you accept the risk and you're comfortable with it. Because I could, I could have a 50% down here and it wouldn't bother me. I wouldn't need to access it for the cash. I'm 26 years old. I can, you know, I, I can ride it out. And as long as I believe in the portfolio, it's, I can ride that out. And I, I know because I've been through, you know, I've had stocks down it. I've had stocks down 80%. I mean, I bought cryptocurrencies and I've seen drop 99%. So um, <laughs> I can deal with a 50%. I know I can deal with a 50% drop in my portfolio, but if you're someone that can't, you can't, you cannot run a concentrated portfolio. And if you're not sure whether you can or not, I'd say don't make it too concentrated because when you find out, it could be quite painful. So those are my thoughts on it. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree totally. Rightmove's a fantastic business. I think you did the right thing uh, with your with your auto trader position. But I guess just to kind of clarify there, my kind of my two pieces off of two very different portfolios, which we can kind of go on to a bit later, but that kind of family one is, you know, uh, my objective is a little bit different to my personal one being, you know, it's mainly kind of the protection of capital, steady growth, um, all that sort of stuff. So, it, you know, it's it's something that you you potentially sacrifice a couple percentage points of gain just because you know you you've got to kind of be, you know, within the realms of that that kind of goal there. And I guess you know on the on the fifty name side of things, I think some of them you obviously sort of spend more time on than others. 
you know, for the for the super big caps in America, you know, they don't take too much time up to read Microsoft's earnings, and you get a very kind of quick reaction from a lot of people reading markets. So, you know, prefer to kind of stick to researching and like looking at the small to medium caps in the in the portfolio too. I do agree with that, actually. I think you have hit on something there. Because, like, for example, I don't actually own Unilever. Um, yeah. John's got it in his portfolio. But I'd say if I if I did own Unilever, I would be completely comfortable not looking at that business for an entire year. I'd, I'd be absolutely fine with it. And then I'd check in it. I'd probably just check the full year results every year. I think that's probably all I need. But Unilever's just not real. I know people are talking about inflation concerns and whatever else at the minute. But for me, Unilever's not a business that I need to be checking quarterly. Whereas, you know, for example, an Etsy where I've got 20% in it and it needs to deliver on the growth. I do need to be checked. If I leave that for a year, that could be quite dangerous if I'm wrong. Whereas with Unilever, I think you can be wrong and it's probably not that dangerous. No, exactly. You can go to the store and eat the ice cream as well. You know, you know it's not fraud, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so how much time do you spend a month on investing in your portfolio? And that um, would include the time you spend with your newsletter and all that. Yeah, quite. I'd probably say an inordinate amount of time, but you know, not to scare anyone, but yeah, probably something like 90 hours a month, you know, two to three hours a day. But that's, you know, I could get by probably with, you know, half an hour, an hour a day, but this is my hobby. It's my passion. It's something I take a lot of pleasure in. So I love reading about the markets day in, day out. So it's kind of part and parcel of why I do what I do. Um, but yeah, I've obviously got a full-time job that kind of restricts that somewhat. So yeah, it's a roughly two to three hours, something like that. Okay. I'd say I'm probably 10 to 15 hours a week. So I don't know what, I mean, I think that must average to similar. It's just over two hours a day, I think. But it does fluctuate depending on whether the book I'm reading at any given time happens to be an investing book or not. So that is the end of the, well, the general questions more about your underlying philosophy. What we'd normally do at this point is we go on to the questions about your portfolio. However, we've been going for 90 minutes and you're the first portfolio we've done on the show where there's UK, where there's a good number of UK listed stocks on it. So I do actually really want to go to town on your portfolio. Oh. So what I would suggest is actually just ending this here and doing two episodes and just doing another, just kept catching this up next week or whenever and just doing the portfolio questions as a, as a separate episode, if you're happy with that, because otherwise we'd have yeah, to rush. Very, yeah, um, very happy with that. Very yeah, because I am really actually enjoying the conversation and <laughs> I don't want to have to speed it up. Um, no, so yeah, so yeah, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to do the portfolio questions in a separate episode. So that's the end of this episode. So if anyone wants to learn more about you whilst they wait for the part two, where can they go? Yeah, head to www the20strader.com uh, or you can follow me on Twitter at uh, 20strader. Yeah, I think that's probably the two best places you can find me and then you can kind of peel off onto any other channels from the website. So uh, look forward to uh, seeing you there. Thank you very much for coming on the show and I'll obviously be talking to you again very soon. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIW Tweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.